Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful to come again and study with you, and we ask that your spirit will join us and let us uh, draw closer to you, understand more fully your kingdom, your methods, your principles, and may your spirit indwell us, transform us, renew us, and empower us to represent you faithfully. We pray in your holy name. Amen. A couple of announcements. I want to remind everybody of the Power of Love training and equipping course that Come and Reason will be doing uh, January 17 to 19 uh, in Allen, uh, Texas, which is just a suburb of Dallas. And um, this is a this is not a clinical training. So if you're this is not like counselors or psychologists training. This is Christian equipping how to tell the the message of the cosmic conflict from beginning to end in an integrated way with uh, biblical uh, truths, uh, science, and how it all the big picture fits fits together. And so uh, we hope we can see you guys there. Meals are all provided. There's a there's a small registration fee that will not actually even cover the meals you're getting. We're going to actually subsidize that. But we uh, we actually charged. Uh, a registration fee primarily because we want serious uh, registrants. And if you don't charge a little registration fee, what happens is a lot of people go, oh, that looks interesting. And they register and you get a big number. And then when you get there, very, you know, many of them don't show. And so that's the primary reason we, we did that. Uh, I think you guys know we're not out to, to make money on these events. So How many are signed up? Um, we've got over 250 signed up right now. It's going to be a lot of fellowship, interaction, empowering of people. We are doing lesson five in the quarterly Ezra and Nehemiah, and the title is Violating the Spirit of the Law. That's the title, Violating the Spirit of the Law. And when you hear that title, does anything pop into your mind? Any examples? Which law are they talking about? Okay, which law is a good one, that's right. Which law? What's the punishment? What's the punishment? Violating the spirit of the law. You know, the first thing that popped into my mind is the story uh, in my book, The God-Shaped Heart, in chapter 7, about the... uh, school teacher at a Christian school whose husband was a deacon and he was physically abusing her. And she went to the pastor who, who uh, chastised the husband and told him that he needed to counsel and so forth and so on. But it never stopped. And so after years of being physically abused, she moved out and filed for divorce. And uh, he went to the conference, which employed her, and complained that she was not fit to teach in a Christian school because she was divorcing him without biblical grounds as he had not been with another woman. And the conference fired her from her job. See, that, that would be, to me, that's an example of violating the spirit of the law. What do you think? Yeah. Um, so the question is, why do, why do such violations of the spirit of law occur? Why does it happen? People aren't educated. People aren't educated? I'm going to suggest it's happening because of rule-keeping... And it has to do with the spiritual immaturity uh, and not actually understanding God's design laws. They believe that God's law functions like human law, just a system of rules that you have to obey or else you get some external punishment. This is level, remember the seven levels of moral decision making? Level one, reward and punishment. Something's right if you get a reward. It's wrong if you get punished. Level two, marketplace exchange. It's uh, we make a deal, the quid pro quo relationship, the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth level of thinking. Now, level three, um, social conformity. Right and wrong is determined by the consensus of the peer group. If the you know the adolescent, everybody else is doing it, mom must be okay. This is the the, the method. Uh, level three, level four, law and order, system of rules adjudicated by judges and imposing imposition of punishments. Level five, love for other people. What's right is acting in love to bless other people, even if the law says something else, like in the era of Jim Crow laws, people who lived at level five would still treat African-Americans with equality and respect, okay? But that would be breaking the Jim Crow laws. 
So you, you don't go by the law, you go by what's actually best for other people. Uh, six is principle-based living, understand God's design laws, the laws upon which life is built, like the laws of health. So a person at level six, when society makes marijuana legal, that's level four, it's legal, it's okay to do now, level four. Level six goes, it may be legal, but it's still unhealthy, so I'm not going to do it. Level six thinking. And level seven, understanding friend of God, not only loves other people and understands God's designs, but intelligently participates in God's purposes. And God often has purposes that, that are larger than what appear to be on the surface for us. Violations of the spirit of the law occur by those operating at a level four and below. Because they have motives, all level four and below motives. If you look at the, the, those levels, they're all self-centered. I want to get a reward. I want to avoid punishment. I want to get a good deal. Uh, I want to be accepted by my peers. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to get in legal trouble. I want to make sure that I'm not in trouble. I don't want to get punished. Okay? It's all self-centered motivation. Level five is the first level where we actually have thoughts for others before self. I, I want to do what's good for that person. I, I, want to, I want to actually help and be beneficent to another. I want to love somebody. That's the level of conversion, where we convert from a self-centered, me-first approach to life to a God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself approach to life. That's level five. So those who live in harmony with the spirit of the law, love God and love others, will often find themselves violating the rules of their religious organization. I'm going to give you some examples. Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Jesus touching lepers. Jesus talking to women. Jesus talking to and socializing with non-Jews, tax collectors, prostitutes. Disciples not ritually washing their hands before they eat. Disciples pulling heads of grain on Sabbath. And don't forget the story of the Good Samaritan. Think about this. The story of the Good Samaritan is so profound. You know the story. There's an injured man. There's a priest, there's a Levite, and there's a Samaritan. In the story, who's the person who's right with God? The Samaritan. Now, think this through with me. In that culture, put yourself back in their era, in their mindset. How many Sabbaths did the Samaritan keep? How many sacrifices did he bring to temple? How much tithe was he paying to temple? How, how many days did he eat a kosher diet? Did he dress in the right clothing? Wait a second. He didn't keep any of their law. But he was right with God. Do you see why they hated Jesus and they wanted to kill him? This is level four thinking. And this is why many people in multiple, doesn't matter, cross denominations, you'll see this dynamic. Rule keepers want their rules kept even if it hurts people. You get that, don't you? Why? Well, what's the... Because you're in legal trouble. It's the same thing. It's very much like the kids in elementary school. Kids in elementary school are rule keepers. It's not fair. Uh, and, but it gives a sense of security. See? False I'm on base. You can't tag me out, God. My TV was off before sunset on Friday. 
And it didn't come on until 30 seconds after sunset on Saturday. You can't put a demerit in my book in heaven. Even though all day, all I was thinking about was, I can't wait till the Sabbath's over so I can watch my show. You see this in Romans. Paul talks about this. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I kept the law until I read the, which commandment was it that he says really brought him to his knees and convicted him? Thou shalt not covet. That's right. The tenth, thou shalt not covet. You see, the first nine can all be done behaviorally. Have no other gods, not make a graven image, not take the name in vain, not break the Sabbath day, honor your parents, not murder, not commit adultery, not bear false witness, not steal. You can do all that behaviorally. I didn't do any of that stuff today. I didn't, I didn't steal. I didn't murder. I didn't commit adultery. I didn't break the Sabbath. I didn't have any other gods. I didn't use the name. Of, I am a perfect law keeper. Until you read the 10th. You should not covet. Wait a second. Wait a second. What's that about? Is it about behavior? Or is it about an attitude of the heart? And that's what brought, he realized, none of that behavior mattered. The motive of the heart was what was, oh, and that's the Good Samaritan story. It dissects the difference between the heart motive. That Samaritan loved people. He gave of himself to help others. The Levite, the priest, they loved themselves, and they're keeping the rules to make themselves look good. You see the same thing in the story of the person bringing offering. The rich brought the offerings and made big displays of their donations. The woman with the two little mites just sneaks it in and tries to sneak out. And who's the one who's right with God? It's the heart motive. Do you have any examples? I give you examples from Bible of violating the spirit of the law. I give you one example of the, of the school teacher. Any other examples going on that you're aware of violating the spirit of the law in today's society that you would like to share? The ones that Jesus mentioned at that time, if you hate somebody, that's like murdering at somebody. Or if you lust after a woman, then that's like adultery. It's like that. And see, if you lust after a woman, it's a some would say, but you can lust after a man. That doesn't count because it wasn't stated. <laughs> <laughs> you, you get silly stuff like that. Like, uh, I've heard this one, you know, the, uh, the number 666, you know, some people apply that if you, Ellen Gould White, if you do her name, it comes up to 666. And people say, well, it can't be her because it's the number of a man. It can't be a woman. Says, what about the president of an organization that applies rules without the spirit of the law? Hmm. I think that's a good example. I think we can see that in organizations today. We need to watch. Okay, first paragraph, it says, uh, To this day, we humans struggle with the question of wealth, poverty, and the gap between the rich and the poor. What can be done about it? Yes, Jesus said that you will have the poor with you always, but that's hardly an excuse to do nothing about helping them. On the contrary, Scripture admonishes us to do our part. We can barely call ourselves Christian otherwise. What do you think? Do we all agree, do we agree that Christians, as people who love God and Jesus and who want to represent God's kingdom of love, 
that uh, as such people, we are to love people and seek to help those in need. We agree with that. So we all agree on the goal, to help people in need. Does that mean we all agree on the method or the best way or the specific action to take to help people in need? Does, because we agree on the goal, does that mean we all agree on the action? Or could we disagree on the action even though we agree on the goal? I don't think there's really any disagreement in helping people who are incapacitated or disabled. Uh, there's no opposition to assisting people who don't have disability but have suffered a catastrophic circumstance like Hurricane Katrina destroying the home, fire destroying the home, uh, sudden unpredictable medical illnesses that uh, financially ruin somebody. We understand catastrophic circumstances and, and uh, for, the, for the able and that find themselves, and we agree to, that those people need help. What about people who are able to care for themselves and have no catastrophic circumstance, but they won't work? What about those people? Scripture gives us guidelines for that as well. What's the Scripture guidelines? If a man will not work, he shall not eat. That's in Thessalonians. It doesn't say if a man cannot work. It says if a man will not work. Right. By voluntary choice. Yeah. There's a, there's a point to that. There are two philosophies, actually, in there's two grand philosophies in how we approach questions of helping people in need. One philosophy is paternalism, and the other philosophy is autonomy. Both philosophies have as their goal helping others in need. That's what they want to do. Paternalism, though, takes the approach that the, uh, uh, that the person in authority, doctor in a medical setting, politician in a governmental setting, the person in authority in the setting knows better than the individual, the patient or the citizen. And that the person in authority functions like a parent, and paternalism, parent, and will make decisions for the individual which the individual must follow irrespective of that person's ability to make their own decisions. The idea is that the person in authority knows better than the individual. This is paternalism. Autonomy takes the position that those in authority utilize their ability to promote the autonomy and development of others and respect the decision-making of others, even if it is detrimental to their own health and well-being, as long as the person understands the risks involved. They have the capacity to understand those decisions. An adult who chooses to smoke, for example... An autonomous approach would educate them about the dangers, but leave them free to smoke, even though it's detrimental to them to do so. A paternalistic approach would do some type of intervention to deny them access to cigarettes or force them into some type of program to take the cigarettes from them. In our society today, we actually have a mixture of paternalism and autonomy. For instance, marijuana... Being illegal is a form of paternalism. Recreational is a form of, recreational marijuana is a form of autonomy. In communist and socialist countries, paternalism is the predominant form of government. The government knows better than the citizenry and will make decisions for them. In our country, autonomy is predominant, but is under assault by social progressives who believe in a paternalistic approach of state-run programs. Now, the question is, what method should a Christian apply in dealing with people? What is most Christ-like? 
How did Christ approach dealing? How's God dealt with human humans through history? Well, Romans fourteen five. Every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. Zechariah four six. Not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. Says the Lord. And what are the two primary character attributes or methods of the Spirit? The Spirit of love and the Spirit of truth. Truth presented in love are the methods. So in Ephesians four fifteen, Paul says. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things, notice the method, we speak truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. Presenting truth in love with various options while leaving people free is God's method, thus autonomy. Why is it God's method, though? What's the reason he uses this method rather than a more paternalistic approach by just telling people the rules and many Christians actually construct the idea that God runs his universe paternalistically. He gives rules, and he tells you to keep his rules, and he and just tells you what to do. Many, many see God that way, but that's not actually how he works. Why is autonomy the way God works? Because of design law. How the laws of God actually function in reality. One of them is the law of liberty. What does God want from his creatures? What does he act, what's his goal for us? What does he want from his angels in heaven? Relationship. Relationship. Okay, we can have relationship. A slave and a slave master have a relationship. That's a relationship. Okay? So you're right, he wants relationship. You're exactly right. What kind of relationship? Does he want the relationship of a slave and a slave master? Then he specifically said to his apostles, I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. Because, yes? You can't get love by force, and he wants love from his creatures. From his, what, the, yes, you're exactly right. So a friend, you don't use force with a friend. You use persuasion and use love, and you lose freedom. Yes. To reach your full potential, and Adam was on the track to that. You're, oh, you guys are so good. Yes, the law of liberty, God wants our love. He wants our trust. He wants our loyalty. He wants our devotion. Doesn't he want all these things from us? Can you get that from an intelligent being by threatening to kill them if they don't give it to you? That's a violation of liberty. So God presents truth and spirit, truth and love, truth and love, but leaves us free because only in freedom is their love, trust, loyalty, devotion developed. As the Ephesian text says above, that we present truth and love and then grow up. Why? Because of the next law. In the environment of liberty, when truth is presented, there's another law, the law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. Because if you don't use it, you... That's not just physical. It's neurobiological. We've given these examples before, but if you want strong language skills, you've got to speak the language. You want strong music ability, you've got to practice an instrument. If you want strong critical reasoning ability, what do you have to do? You have to actually think and reason. Every person fully persuaded in their own mind, or as Hebrews 5.14, the mature, notice, notice what's described, the mature have developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. You see, the mature are not those who go to, go to God, go to the Bible, go to some uh, uh, ecclesiastical authority and get a list of the answers. Here are the 28 doctrines. Just memorize those. Here's the right answers. 
That's like going to a math course and, and having the teacher tell you, here are the answers to all the problems. Just memorize the answers, and when the test comes, you'll know number one is 47, number two is 23, and you just put those in the end, and then you get 100 on your exam. Many people approach Christianity this way. They want someone to tell them the answer. Even if it's the right answer, if you don't know why it's the right answer, it's like, I got the right answer on math. Okay, why is that the right I have no idea. I just know it's the right answer. You still don't know how to do math. The mature are those who develop by practice the ability to discern right and wrong. This is why God does autonomy. He presents truth and love and leaves you free to make your own choices, to think it through for yourself, to come to your own conclusions. If we take the paternalistic approach and provide everything for everyone, then one, we obstruct freedom, which damages love and incites rebellion. And two, we infantilize and undermine development. People become less capable and less able. They do not grow into the full stature of Jesus Christ as God designed us. Only by exercising our faculties and abilities in harmony with God's methods and designs do we develop and grow. If we don't use them, we stagnate. So the parable of the talents. Why do you think the one with the ten talents got ten more? This is not about money, guys. It's about abilities. It's the law of exertion. If you have been given a gift and you go out and exercise it, you train, you practice, guess what happens to that gift? You expand it. But if you bury it and don't use it, the talent, the one talent, didn't do anything with it. It was taken away. If you don't use it, you lose it. This is exactly how God designed things to be. It's designable. It's beautiful if you think about it. So, so if we, if we just give stuff to people that are capable, we infantilize and, and some people in political positions do this on purpose. Because when we infantilize people or make them less capable, they develop a position of dependency. They now depend on that source or else they will collapse and not be able to survive. And if they depend on that source, then that becomes a a um, a predictable and reliable voting block for them in, in certain forms of government or societies. But such approach, in my view, is not really harmony with God's design. You know, in Bible times, widows and the poor had mechanisms to get food for free. There is a mechanism set up by God for, for those who had no money to get food for free. What was the mechanism? Cleaning, Cleaning in the fields. That's right. They would go out and they would glean. The food was free. But they actually had to go out and gather it if they were capable. This is not talking about the people who were paralytics or demented or psychotic or somehow. These are talking about capable people, but they found themselves in poor circumstances. Now, what is the difference upon the person, the individual, who is getting help by gleaning... Versus staying at home and somebody brings them either money or groceries. What's the difference on the person? Is there a difference? Self-worth. Okay, you want to expand on that? I, I agree with you. I just wondered, does everybody understand what she means by self-worth? Integrity, sense of accomplishment, sense of purpose, investment of your own time, pursuit, application, work. The law of exertion. The law of exertion. So the goal of the Christian is to assist every person to develop their God-given abilities to the fullest. Yes or no? 
Thus, we do not deny people opportunity. We create opportunities. And there are multiple ways to do this, to create opportunities for people. But guess what? There are multiple ways to deny people opportunity. The obvious evil ways of denying opportunity, discrimination based on sex, race, religion, so we don't even allow you to apply for a job because of the color of your skin, for instance. These are evil ways to deny opportunity. Slavery, evil way to deny opportunity. Refusing to educate people. Not giving people freedom to not go to school, that's a different question, but not, but blocking and not allowing. So in, there are multiple Muslim countries today where women are not allowed to be educated. Because if they can't read and they can't write, they can't do math, what can they do? They're dependent on their husbands and the men. They can't be informed, they can't be enabled, they can't learn. You've blocked so much advancement by not educating. This is a way of denying opportunity, yeah? Okay, But there are other ways to deny opportunity that are less obvious and actually can appear good. Giving handouts to those who are capable of work, but providing no avenue for autonomy or employment. Just handouts. Providing an example, more more simple example. Grandma is... uh, She's getting old. She can get around. She can still walk, but it, she, it, it, she, it's real slow with a cane. So you buy her a motorized wheelchair for her to ride around in her house in. Have you helped her? Or you've helped infantilize her because if she doesn't use it, she loses it. See, you're denying her opportunity by taking away her level of ability by helping her. I see this all the time. Doing for someone what they are actually capable of doing for themselves. If they don't do it, it's like, you know what? Um, physical therapist, okay, he signed me some exercises after my shoulder surgery, but they were painful, so he goes and does my exercises for me. Feel better? Yeah, yeah, felt, felt a lot better. Yeah. Well, I can help. Yeah. See, does that actually give me more ability and autonomy, or does it actually deny me if that was the way it approached? It, it shuts, because I'll lose strength, I'll lose ability. Sunday's lesson, Nehemiah 5, 1 through 5 says, Now the men and, and their wives raised great outcry against the Jewish brothers. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous, and in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. So others were saying, We've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, And though our sons are as good as theirs, we've had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. The lesson points out that the rich and empowered were using the poor for their own advantage. Do we agree that exploiting other people is wrong and that we should not exploit people for our own advantage or gain? We all agree with that. Okay. Do you know in every culture of the world, they've done some polls asking, in every culture, how do you define evil? What is evil? And do you know that every culture in the world, at its root, they have different ways of expressing it, but if you look at what's actually transpiring at its root, they all define evil as exploiting another person for your own gain. That's evil. 
the obvious stuff, molesting or raping or, or stealing, but the more subtle stuff, taking credit for somebody else's work. So you get a promotion. Gossiping about someone to ruin their reputation so they get fired and you get a promotion. It's evil. That's what evil is, exploiting people for your own gain. M. Scott Peck wrote a book, it's a powerful book, called People of the Lie. And he describes human evil. And, and he says it's a, it's a very dangerous book, and it's a book only for the mature, uh, because he doesn't describe the evil everyone sees. I don't think there's really anybody that sees a, a molester, a serial killer, a rapist, uh, and think that's good. I think we all recognize those kinds of things are evil. That, that's easy. Everybody sees it. He describes the evil, though, that, that masquerades among us as righteousness. And he uncovers the evil that is sitting next to you in the pew or maybe even preaching. And it's very profound uh, what he does. Um, you know, the evil that Christ dealt with. He dealt with a lot of evil that was masquerading as righteousness in his day, wasn't he? Yeah. So if we look at this definition, people in power exploiting those without power for their own gain, do we see that in societies today? I'll give you some. Soviet Union, China, Cuba. Did these societies exploit, have people in power that exploited people without power? Yes or no? Yes. That's communism. So how about this? Nazi Germany. Did it exploit the people in power, exploit the people without power? Yes. Socialism. How about this? In England, in the United States, did people exploit people without power? People with power exploit people without it. Railroad barons, mining corporations. You know the history of capitalism, don't you? Did it happen? Yes. Would it still happen today if there weren't regulations and oversights? Yes. Oh, it still does happen. And it still does happen. Okay, there you go. So, notice, I went through communism, socialism, capitalism. Is there any government on earth where people in power don't exploit people without power? No. Okay, no. Even the theocracy. Uh, in the Old Testament Bible times. Yeah. What about uh, programs uh, in, in America or other governments or societies that are framed as providing help for the poor but prevent the poor from actually becoming autonomous? Are these good or are these evil? Hmm. What about programs that send excess food that we make in America. Sometimes farmers have more than they can sell in the markets, and they put it on the markets. The markets will crash, and they won't make as much money. So the government stores that, takes it and puts it in these big storage bins and silos. And then when there's famine in the third world, they'll ship that over as a donation. The government will buy it at a price and send it over. Our government will and give it to third world countries so that they can have nutritional supplement. People will not become you know, malnourished. Is this a good thing for the third world to get the free food sent to them? Maybe. It would sound like it's a really good thing, wouldn't it? Well, according to the Foundation for Economic Education, economists Nathan Nunn and Nancy Kwan uh, uh, published research in the American Economic Review examining the causal effect of U.S. food aid on conflict within poor countries. On average, an increase in U.S. food aid increases the incidence and duration of civil wars.
Nunn and Kwan suggest this is due to the fact that the food aid can be easily stolen by armed groups or corrupt governments and used to prolong their struggles against each other. If we love others, do we evaluate the impact our actions have on others, or do we just take an action that is designed to be, it's a blessing, we'll give food for free, it's a good thing. And we don't look at the the consequences, just the action without consequences. Is that the way we approach things? Or do we ask if our actions, even with good intentions, are harming? Do we ask the question? Enabling dysfunction, uh, increasing dependency and codependency under the guise of compassion, or are we helping people grow to the fullest stature that God designed them to grow? You guys are awful quiet now. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Where in the life of Jesus do you see where rich... Powerful people were exploiting the poor. In Jesus' life or in the community in time he lived? That time. Oh yeah, you see it all the time. Where you really see it is when he entered the temple and cleansed the temple. So The rich and powerful were exploiting the poor. In guise of religious service to God. Yeah. Now, with that in mind, let me read you this. Okay. 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 What's it from? This is from the Desire of Ages. Okay. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being, from the bright and holy seraph to man, should be a temple for the indwelling of the Creator. Yep. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God. Darkened and defiled by evil, the heart of man no longer revealed the glory of the Divine One. But by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. God dwells in humanity, and through saving grace, the heart of man becomes again his temple. Beautiful. That is what God wants. You're exactly right. Is that page 161? Oh. It's page 161. It it's 161. <laughs> Trust me. Thank you. <laughs> so, no, but it's beautifully said. This is exactly right. He wants to indwell us. And so it, we want to unpack that further. Do you, do you want to say more about it? You cannot legislate goodness and humanity. The only way to fix society's problems is to have Jesus indwelling in us. Yes, and that, yes. And so thank you for that because I want to make a distinction. I'm bringing up some of these things in our society, but you know, I'm trying to come back and say, but how should the Christian act? What's the Christian's role? Do we get caught up in the methods of the state or do we have a different approach to how we, we do things? And, and so I think that's right on, right on point. Do you see also, hopefully your little computers were going when he was reading that, do you connect it to a cleansing of the sanctuary message? If, if we were to be indwelt by the Spirit and, this, and the cleansing of the temple, he was announcing his mission to cleanse the hearts and minds of people from the stains of sin. That's what the quote goes on to say. Do we recognize that? That we are to be cleansed, heart and mind. 
Yeah. So do we ask the question as we are going forward to reveal Christ to the world, do we simply say, I'm going to take an action because it looks good, and it does, and it is actually self-sacrifice. I'm going to give for free. And that's a sacrifice to me because I really can't afford it, but I'm going to give it anyway. Lord, before we give it, do we ask, what are the potential consequences? From the same article in the Foundation for Economic Education, it goes on to say the following. Too often policies are judged on their own terms. X tons of food aid were delivered, therefore mission accomplished. And how they make us feel rather than on a sober analysis of the overall effect. But Milton Friedman's observation is as valid today as it was when he first said it. The results of any given policy do not depend on the intentions of its creators. Amen. Did you hear that? The results do not depend on our intention. Friedman's insight should lead us to embrace a more skeptical view of the state and its ability to solve every social problem. What you were saying, the state can't solve these problems because they're really problems in hearts. Organizations can't solve the problem either. So the purpose of the organization of the church is to create opportunity with truths and experiential love and grace ministered to each other as agents of Christ for people to experience the cleansing of their hearts and minds. That's its mission. The mission isn't to build cathedrals, is it? To increase our tithe base. To increase uh, so many baptisms a quarter. Is that the mission? To work with the state in order to affect political change. To work with the state in order to get certain laws or judges, laws passed or judges in place. Is that the mission? Or to work together to get the, the most accurate set of fundamental beliefs that people can attest to. That's the goal. We have to define everything in the most precise way. Nothing wrong with accurate definitions. I'm not criticizing that. Nothing wrong with, with more precise understandings of truth. I'm not criticizing that. But is the mission simply the, or is the mission to what you read, to bring people to a place where they experience healing of heart and mind, the indwelling of the spirit? You'll see several attacks. You know, the same author that was just read writes that the, this Holy Spirit makes effectual in the believer what Christ accomplished at the cross. And it's the Spirit who brings the change and transforms the heart and enlightens the truth and gives the conviction. This is one of the reasons there's an attack on the Holy Spirit today. Those anti-Trinitarians that are attacking and want to deny the existence of the Holy Spirit. Because Christ's mission has no impact on your life without the work of the Holy Spirit. It had an impact on what he achieved. He still achieved as a human being a perfect, sinless human life. He still revealed the truth. He still, in his person, saved the species human because he was a descendant through his mother of of Adam, so the species human was perfected in the person of Jesus, and there will always be a human being in existence named Jesus who reigns in heaven, so the species was saved. But you and I, we're without hope if there's no Holy Spirit to bring it home to our hearts. You guys know that, right? This is why there's an attack on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes effectual in the believer what Christ achieved at the cross. Brings it home, writes it on the heart, circumcision of the heart, renewal, transformation, enlightenment. 
is having good intentions to help those in need enough, or do we need to consider the impact? And then after taking an action, is there, if we have the opportunity, sometimes the action, we can never, we, we just never see them again, but if we have the opportunity, is it appropriate to evaluate the, the impact our actions have and then reevaluate the next action? The lesson in the second paragraph states, they had already lost their land and now they had to send someone um, from the family, usually children, to be in the service of the creditor in order to work off the debt. What do you think about this? This idea of going into debt and then having to work for the creditor in order to pay the debt. Is this evil? Always? Well, uh, it depends, I guess, on the circumstances, because I was a recipient of a health professional scholarship program that uh, paid my way through medical school from the U.S. Army. The government paid all my medical expenses and all my bills, all my medical school expenses, and bought all my equipment and bought all my books, and, and I went into debt. And according to our agreement, after I finished medical school, I had to go into the Army and serve my creditor and work for my creditor for so many years to pay off my debt. Was that evil? No. No, no but you had a choice. So the idea of simply taking debt and then working for the creditor to pay it off, that idea in and of itself isn't evil. It, it depends on the terms, right? It, so I was going to ask, what makes it evil then? That because I because I did it voluntarily, I had a choice versus forcing someone into um, you know indentured servanthood without their voluntary consent. Is that what makes it evil? Is it the other terms that they're evil? I I, I had three I had three years of medical school paid. Now I have to serve the rest of my life. Is it the terms that are that are it, children being forced into this? It, it, is the so you see my point. The concept could not could be constructed in a way that it's actually a benefit. I couldn't have gone to med school. Maybe I could have. I'd have just had bigger loans, and I would have been paying the bank back. I was still in debt, and I'm not actually working directly for the creditor. But you know what I mean. If you've had debt, you know you know who you're working for. People say you own a house. Well, the bank owns it, <laughs> right? right? Can you hand over here somewhere? Yeah. So my mom and her two sisters, when they immigrated in the 1920s from uh, Soviet or from Russia. Um, and uh, with their father, and the mother died along the way, and a couple of twins, they were sponsored uh, to the U.S. And when they got here, uh, the three girls, my mom included, were farmed out to help raise or to help pay back the sponsors. And, and, and was it a reasonable um, indebtedness, or was it exploitive? It was reasonable. Because what he described is also happening in places like China, where they will smuggle people out of China with a hope to come to America, and it's $30,000 or something that you're indebted, and you come and you work in some sewing sweatshop where they pay you $2 an hour or something, uh, and you work 12 hours a day, seven days a week for 15 or 20 years to pay back the $30,000. This type of thing is happening in America today. You know that. That is evil, isn't it? Because it's exploitive. And they don't tell them the terms up front. They give them a rosy picture up front, and then they get here. They're locked up. They're chained up. They're in prison. They're not allowed to go out. That kind of stuff is evil. Do you see the difference in that and what was described here and what I experienced? See, we kept our autonomy, our freedom. They don't. Monday's lesson in the second paragraph, it points out that that for Israel, lending money was permitted. You could lend money. 
but charging interest was not permitted. What do you think of this rule? People could, you could borrow money from somebody, but you couldn't charge them interest for it. No one said it. Love for your neighbor. You don't love people? What's wrong with you? I'm just, I'm just I'm not really picking, I'm just pointing that out. That's how people would say, right? Love, the incentive is love, right? But you're pointing out there's no self-motivation, selfishness. Why do I loan money? So I can make money. The goal here was you loan because you love your neighbor. You want to help them, help lift them up. You don't want to take advantage of them. It's a benefit to the community. A benefit, yeah. The tribe, to the community, to the overall well-being. To help, yeah. That would be the motive, but, but you, you're exactly right. The motive in our society isn't that way, is it? Yeah, go ahead. Wasn't the Old Testament usury law, wasn't that a punitive form of interest, or was it strictly just interest? No, I know. No, no interest is allowed. So that's usury? Is it usury? Usury, yeah. Yeah. So... Do you think if this was the law in our society today, banks and lending institutions could lend money, but they could not charge interest? If that was the way it was in our, our society today, in America, that's the law. Do you think the poor would be better off or worse off? And why? What, what's your reason for saying that? What do you, what, we, we don't know, it's all, it's all speculation at this point, but knowing the hearts of human beings and knowing what's actually happening in our society the way it is today, what do you think would actually happen? Would, would the, would the poor have more access to money or less? Would they have, um, better terms when they do borrow or worse? Well, why? Because it's illegal to charge interest. Why? What would happen likely? Be better because people would be living inside their means, they would be using credit cards, they would be more fiscal responsibility. Okay, so one argument is they would have they would have less debt because they wouldn't use credit cards. Ever heard of loan sharks in our society today? Do you think illegal lending would go down or go up in that society? The illegal lending where people lend off the books and you have high exorbitant interest rates because it's not regulated, and if you don't pay, they come and break your legs. Would that would that be the same level today? You think, or would it go up? I think it would get worse, my, my speculation, I don't know. Yes. Okay. What was the theme of the last quarter's lesson? We are all one family in Christ. Do you charge your family members interest? Yes. It depends. <laughs> it depends. In terms of me, no, I've never charged my family interest. They're your family they're your family. You don't charge your family interest. <laughs> I've done exactly what you've said. I've loaned and not charged interest. I've had that experience. I know exactly what you mean. I've done that. I probably won't get your principal back. And that's okay because they're my family. Then it's not a loan. It's a gift. So let me ask you this question. Is it good to loan to a person? Is it good to loan money to a person? Without interest, even, if it's likely, or, or if it's likely that person won't be unable to pay it back. Is it good to loan it if it's likely they won't be able to pay it back? Just give it to them. That's what you're doing. No, no, but, 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 yes, you, I didn't ask I didn't ask if it was good. That's a different question. We, we cannot, we can unpack that. She has, she's thrown a new question on the table. Is it good to give money to people who are unlikely to be able to pay back a loan? But the first question we need to answer first, is it good to loan money to people even without interest if it's likely they can't pay it back? 
Why or why not? Because they're in the naval our country. Well, why are they unlikely to pay it back? Are they irresponsible or are they uh, somehow incapacitated to where they, they couldn't physically pay it back? Either. It doesn't really matter. Okay. What's, what's the consequence? Think, think you've borrowed money from your brother, your dad, your uncle, your neighbor, because you needed it. And it doesn't really matter the reason. You're irresponsible. You never really pay anything. Or you've got an incapacity. That you, but what happens to you knowing you've borrowed and you don't pay it back? What happens to you? You don't want to be around. Yes. You can't make generalizations. <laughs> sure we can. You can't. But what we have, we have the Holy Spirit. And in each case, if you bring that case to the Holy Spirit... That's where the answer comes. Yeah, I, I don't dispute that, but it still doesn't answer the question. But you want a general answer. No, no, I want you to understand how reality works. This is a design law question. Applying in real life and the res- cause and effects that happen to people. What happens to a person who borrows money, from, not from an institution, from a friend, a family member, and for whatever reason they're unable to pay it back? Boy, we got a lot of discussion now, don't we? Yes, over here. He was talking about family. Yeah. Your family. You can all not charge interest, but his question was, who is our family? Okay, I, yeah, still, I, I, I don't even want to go there. I want to stay focused on this question. I want us to understand because our, our behaviors have consequences, folks. And you can do good. What you think is good, what, what, what you're actually doing is harming somebody. Then I want you to understand how you can harm somebody while you think you're helping them. Okay? Yes. Somebody had their hand up back there. When we help people, it, it depends on what our motivation is. And if we lend money to people and it's going to change our relationship, if they don't pay it back, we shouldn't lend it. Sometimes the message about being generous and saying, I will help you, and they don't pay it back, makes a bigger statement to them that in my time of need, you helped me. And it can, it can make a better relationship. And I think, so it all depends, and I agree with you. There's no general answer to this. Oh, no, I, I, like, I like what you said because you brought another element in and that is, what impact will it have on you, the, the lender, if they don't pay it back? Will you resent them? Will you feel cheated? Will you feel robbed? So, what's your relationship to the person? If you lend this person money and in your heart, where you're at, in this current place of your life, if they don't pay it back, you'll be frustrated, angry, hurt, um, and whatever, then irrespective of what happens to them, if you know your heart is there, it's probably better for you not to loan the money, right? If that's where your maturity level is and your current struggles are. And let's face it, guys, we've all been at that place at some point in our journey, in our growth, in our development. We've been places like that. Okay, so, but, but I really want to focus on the, the heart of the other person. What happens if any of you ever borrowed something and been in a position not to be able to pay it back or had to struggle and for a while you were worried, but you got it paid back, but for a while you were worried whether you're going to be able to? You ever been in that position? Yes. What happens inside you? Do you have more joy? No. Do you have less stress or more stress? Do you feel more comfortable around the person that loans you the money when you have it, when you've missed seven payments, but you're really trying, you're working hard, but you can't just get enough? Do you feel more, com- even though it's your brother, do you feel more comfortable around knowing you haven't made seven payments? And he's not mad. He's gracious. He's okay. 
Do you still feel more comfortable? No, you don't. This is reality. This is how... So so there is a place for us to consider if I loan this money. So if you have a reasonable likelihood that the person you're going to loan to and you're considering doing it is going to be unable to pay it back, what's better than loaning them the money? Giving it to them or constructing some other mechanism whereby, like gleaning in the field, whereby they in some way earn it rather than receive it as a loan. God gave us his son without expecting us to earn it back. He, he gave it with no expectation that we pay him back. And? It's just like, you know, with the higher level of morality, if we help people with an expectation that they're going to pay us back, that's a lower level. Did he loan us his son? No, he gave Okay, so we're, we're actually talking about loaning money with, okay, you've again shifted to a different question. Should we give money to people? That's a different question. I was really focusing. So, so now we can answer this next question because you brought it up as well. Okay, and the next question, first question, I think we've, we've kind of gotten to a point that it could, and your, and circumstances do matter, but it could actually hurt somebody to loan them money. It could hurt them. And we have a responsibility to be thoughtful about that, especially the closer they are to us. It's our brother, our sister. We know some circumstances. They're in debt because, uh, and if you know what the circumstances are, well, you know what, you've, they've already borrowed from you three times and they've never paid one penny back. Do you keep loaning? Do you keep loaning? Is that a good idea? I mean, when you know the circumstances, it becomes even more clear, doesn't it? Okay. And or do we then move from loans to gifts? We'll gift them the money. Now, have you, any of you come on, don't worry, oh, you get a, get a comment. Uh, on the borrowing, whether there's interest involved or not, the borrower becomes slave to the lender. That's right. Now, I wouldn't say slave is a strong word, but they become indebted to, and they feel an obligation to. And what happens when you take that, uh, people who have a sense of responsibility have a burden placed on them now. I've borrowed, and I am very responsible. And I will tell you, I felt loss of autonomy with the bigger loans that I've taken out. I'm servicing the loan for my mortgage and so forth. Okay, Doesn't mean it was necessarily wrong, but I, I feel that. And if I couldn't pay it back, I would really feel a significant stress for that. It wouldn't bring me joy. Yes? Could collateral solve the problem? That so that's certainly something that could be thrown in there, and that's what's talking about here. They collateraled their land, and they lost their land and stuff because they couldn't pay their loan. And supposed to. <laughs> supposed to. One other thing we need to bring out, that you, can't, you shouldn't charge interest if you're loaning it to another Israelite. But you can if you're loaning it to another nation. Oh, it's interesting, isn't it? And uh, so do we want to talk about gifting people things? We talked about loaning. Christ, for God so loved the world, he gave. What did he give? Well, he gave Jesus. I will tell you, there have been times in my life I prayed in my immaturity for a windfall of a, bit, of a lot of cash. <laughs> Am I the only one that made that prayer? Come on. Okay. 
I didn't get that windfall of cash. Why was the cattle in the thousand hills are his? Everything's his. Is he not wealthy enough? Does he not have the money? Why didn't I get that cash? Why didn't he give it to me? He gave me Jesus, but he didn't give me the cash. Why? Yes. We've got something better than a room full of cash. Hmm. And that is salvation because of Jesus. A hundred trillion years from now, we're going to be heaven, in heaven, praising his name for what he did for us. Oh, I agree with that. Jesus is much more important than cash, but, but, and you're right. We need Jesus more than we need cash. No question about it. But there's an additional reason here. Yes. I feel like the reason is because I know that I need God's help. And if he just gives it to me, I can take advantage of it. But if I have to work for it and pray for it, I'm acknowledging the only way I can get it is through God's help. Story of the prodigal son, guys. Prodigal son. Prodigal son's poor, homeless. He's a homeless person, guys. And he's in dire straits. He's living with pigs, eating pig slop. The only food he has is the slop they throw to pigs. Is dad a poor man or a wealthy man? Did dad have the resources to have one of his agents track the son and put him up in a Motel 6 and send him pizza from Pizza Hut? Did he have the resources for that? Why didn't he? He didn't need love. I mean, if you love, you give. Didn't he give? Why didn't he give? What would have happened to the boy had dad send him additional, you know, maybe not direct cash, but just put him up in the, in the motel and gave him pizza from Pizza Hut and kept him in a, in a minimal level of, of reasonable existence? What would have happened to the boy? He had already tried. He was accommodated to that. Do you think he would have said, what well, the Bible says in the pig slop, eating the pig food, it says he came to his senses. Do you think he would have come to his senses had he been continued to be supported? No. Or would he have said, I'm getting by, it's not so bad out here. This is what addicts will call hitting rock bottom. If they don't hit rock bottom, they don't actually own it and say, you know what, this lifestyle doesn't work. And this is what enabling, somebody said enabling over here. Enablers will not let their loved ones hit rock bottom because they can't stand the pain of seeing a loved one eating pig slop. It hurts. Or the criticism from their other friends saying, why are you letting your son live that way? It hurts. It's painful. Does that, that doesn't mean that every situation and every child needs to be with the pigs eating the pig slop. But the point is there are sometimes, in some individuals, that's the, the route you have to take. And giving to them will not help them. It will only enable dysfunction. That's the point that a godlike giver actually examines to the best of their ability the situation and circumstance and tries to assess through Holy Spirit enlightenment and praying and asking God for wisdom, what is the best action I can take in governance of me that can be redemptive and a blessing to this person? Is it giving a resource right now? Is that what I need to do to help them, to touch them with love, that they see somebody still loves me even though I'm a horrible, um, you made horrible decisions and have ruined uh, my life, that somebody still loves me, I'm not rejected and cast off? This can bring people to redemption. Others have to be left in their pain of their circumstances where they hit rock bottom and they go, you know what, this doesn't work. I think I'll go home. And, and there is no cookie-cutter approach, as you guys were saying. But the heart motive, our heart motive is, and this is where people say, I want to help this person, and this is what I do in my practice all the time. I want to help this person. I say, 
Well, what does it mean to help them? Helping doesn't necessarily, you can't cookie cutter help. Just throwing money at everybody who's poor, well, some people will be helped by that because they just need a helping hand up and they'll take that and they will go to school or they'll invest it or, and they will get out of the, the situation. Some people will. Other people will just use it on drugs, alcohol, and just ruin themselves with it. So helping isn't, isn't, the, isn't some cookie. We just, we have to, well, what do you need? I am helping you by not doing. I'll, I'll close with this story. I uh, had, I uh, was consulted many years ago to see a woman that was uh, 67 in chronic renal failure on the dialysis unit. And I was consulted to see her because the, re- the nephrologist felt that she had given up on life and, and, uh, and without a desire to live, no matter what they do, she was getting worse. And when I went into the room to see her, she had probably 15 family members in the room with her, hovering around her bed in a attentive, loving, supportive, caring, interested, fearful, apprehensive, what can I do to help attitude. And I evaluated her, and I went out and wrote orders to move her to the psych ward so I could do a familyectomy. <laughs> excise and remove her family from her. And when we got there, I'll show you why. When we, when we got to the, to the, brought her into the hospital bed, put her in the psych unit, I'm on the psych, uh, in, the, in the nursing station writing orders, and the call bell goes off for her room. So I walk in her room with the, uh, with the nurse, and this poor, poor pitiful woman, she says, Will you put my glasses on my face? Now, what would you have done? Poor, pitiful, renal failure, a potentially dying person. Uh, what kind of a cruel person wouldn't... Uh, a simple request, she can't see. But you had to look in the room. She had to reach over her glasses to hit the call light. She did. Her glasses were here on the table. She had to reach over them to hit the call light. Would I be helping her to put the glasses on her face? No. What, are, what do you think our family would have done? I said, no. Your glasses are right there. If you want them on your face, you can put them on. And we stopped doing for her what she was able to do for herself. Within three days, she's up helping in the kitchen, setting the tables and cleaning up after the meals. She was capable of doing so much more, but because she had a real serious illness, and her illness was real, she had real illness. She was on dialysis three times a week. Her family started doing for her what she was still capable of doing for herself because they wanted to help her. They weren't helping. And that's where the wisdom has to come in, where we have compassion, but when we think about helping, we're actually doing something that helps the person achieve the highest level of functioning and autonomy they are capable of achieving with their current level of abilities. That's our goal as Christians, is it not? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did in fact send your only begotten Son to provide for us everything we need for salvation and eternal life. And we are so thankful for you that you are a giving God who doesn't loan us stuff, but just gives everything for our good. Lord, give us wisdom now that as we go out and practice your methods, that we will give what's actually good for people, not necessarily what they want and that we can be effective agents in your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.